I, yeah. I fully, I fully admit I, I am an urbanist. I love cities. Um, I love the kind of mess that exists in, you know, urban environments. Um, I, I think that there's a healthy density that exists and, and this is obviously, you know, kind of a popular, maybe cliche thing, but, um, we need more missing metal kind of housing densities. And, um, I, I love that that has come into the public consciousness. Um, but the reality is we, as United States, have grown so much since World War II um, growth, or at that time progress, um, to you know to industrialize farming, to electrify, um, to build the highways, to you know to have a modern lifestyle post World War II. Um, just changed, changed the way we were thinking. Uh, we were just a very different country after World War II. And, and you just fast forward and track, you know, every decade, builders have gotten more successful in streamlining. Um, the trades have gotten, you know, more streamlined in how they, you know, how they deliver work and different progress. I don't really believe that cities are planned in, in the United States. Um, I think they happen by happenstance. They happen lot by lot. Um, we do put plans on paper. Um, but the reality is we're not really planning in the sense of we want, we're going to set forward a plan and this is the type of urban environment that's going to provide the type of thing that people crave. We basically set up to be like, this is what our builder and developer partners are going to deliver us um, because, because having people is your community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 62 of the Placemaking Podcast. This is actually the first episode of season number three, so thank you all for joining me here today. Can't wait to share this next conversation with all of you. Today on the show, I have Mark Seibold. Mark is an architect, city planner, and serial entrepreneur. With extensive experience in design and construction, Mark has worked in a variety of industries with a close relationship to the built environment. Mark and his team launched Ethos, a public benefit development corporation in 2021. They're pursuing healthy and walkable ground-up multifamily and adaptive reuse development projects. And Mark received his chosen architecture from Oklahoma State University in 2001, his architecture license in 2005, and AICP certification in 2011. And this episode, we learned a lot about Mark's past experience from architect to brewmaster to developer and everything in between. We discussed, we discussed the philosophy of city planning presently, suburban sprawl, and the psychology behind urban growth patterns. And then at the end of the show, we revealed some big news on the show moving forward. Be sure to listen till the end. There is tons of great information in this episode, and I hope you enjoy as always, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show, share with your friends in the industry. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on here. Uh, it, we've, we've been talking back and forth for a while now. And it's, it's finally come to pass. I finally get to talk to you here on the podcast and, you know, really want to start off by uh, learning a little bit more about Mark, <laughs> what, what you're doing 
uh, professionally. And, you know, maybe we start back, maybe not the, the true beginning, but uh, how about how about college? That seems like a good place to start and we can work from there. Yeah. First of all, man, thank you so much for for having me here. Uh, been listening uh, to the podcast for a while now and just thrilled that um, that you've been bringing this kind of content forward and um, especially having such amazing conversations with really talented people. So um, one, thrilled to be a part of it. And uh, two, yeah, just um, yeah, a fan and, and now participant. So this is a dream come true. So um, I've had a, I'd say a pretty linear career. Um, I knew uh, early on in life I was going to be an architect. And so, you know, you're you know, 14 years old, uh, went on a trip to Chicago and everything just clicked. So, you know, making the decision to uh, go to go to college and study architecture was kind of automatic and uh, was really fortunate to have a group of people that I passed through uh, Oklahoma State with that all very passionate, very talented um, an exceptional class of people that I just loved are still, you know, my best friends. Um, but we really pushed ourselves and um, we really grew in so many ways by having this very kind of intense studio environment. And um, out of that, um, pretty much everybody left the state of Oklahoma to take jobs in um, national firms around the country, around the world, mm -hmm. even. Um, a couple of folks have come back uh, over the years uh, to raise their families here in Oklahoma. Um, but um, it, it was just one of those experiences that to be in a place like Stillwater, Oklahoma, um, you know, in the you know late 90s, wasn't much going on. Um, it really felt like the early days of something big was happening. And so um, a little you know, step back. I graduated from high school on, I think, a Monday night, and two weeks later, I was taking a drafting class at uh, the <laughs> local um, extension office. It was OSU OKC office, and a college credit class um, basically walked in. I wasn't 18 years old yet, um, so I had to have my parents sign the paperwork, um, <laughs> but before, yeah, before I was out of high school, I enrolled in this class. I just wanted to learn how to draw. I was, I was just so eager to get going. And so that was the last semester they taught hand drafting. And as we went through school, kind of following uh, that university arc, we were the first class to present our boards um, completely in Photoshop, you know, completely printed off, um, not hand drawn completely. We draw, <laughs> scan the sketches in, Photoshop them up, put them on the board, print the board out, mount that to foam core, and that's our gallery presentation. And that transition from hand drafting as a you know, incoming freshman, rising freshman into, um, you know, my sophomore and junior year of doing complex 3D modeling and, you know, the early 3D Viz, 3D Max, it was a generational change that just happened right in front of us. And um, the technology, thankfully, didn't get in the way of the creativity, but seeing that uh, really early in my career meant that I was already positioned for that next phase of where architecture was going. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we graduated um, in 2001, um, all of my class pretty much left Oklahoma. Um, to be fair, you know, only about half the class was actually from Oklahoma. We had a lot of international students and a lot of folks from around the country. And so some people went home, uh, but realistically, um, I made a decision that I wanted to stay in Oklahoma. And there's a really great firm in Oklahoma City 
um, that was doing a lot of international work, a lot of very big projects, and they were the architect of record for it, and just had this amazing experience of working at a firm that did construction documents and construction detailing and knew the process of how to put a building together. And it just launched me in another, you know, way um, of having this just this great background of technical experience um, that's carried on kind of through the rest of the career. So um, had a chance to work for a couple of firms in Oklahoma City. Um, I uh, took a slight kind of um, uh, call it a side hustle now. Um, then people might have called it a distraction. Um, but uh, Oklahoma City was growing at that time and uh, very jealous of, frankly, Dallas and Denver and Kansas City and all the other cool places that had fun things. So I was talking with some buddies and I just said, hey, what would it take to get a microbrewery started here in Oklahoma City? And um, we did some research. We, we did some uh, air quotes research. Um, we <laughs> talked, market we talked, research. Right? Yeah, exactly. Market research. <laughs> um, lots of trips to Denver and Boulder, Colorado and Austin. Um, for business, so. for business, for business purposes. Right, right, right. And uh, and and realistically, we looked around like, why can't we have cool things? And so we put our heads together, um, brought our business partners in, uh, made some great friends along the way, and started Coop Aleworks. And uh, Coop Aleworks was formed uh, officially in 2008. We made our first batch in 2009, and uh, we are now the last count the largest brewery in Oklahoma. And uh, the team has, in the last year, um, started production of the Sonic Seltzers. And so Sonic, of course, is the drive-in, and we're the, um, the contract manufacturer for those Sonic Seltzers. And wow. so it, going from you know, zero, basically my homebrew equipment in my garage, um, to that has taken a lot of work. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not a day-to-day uh, -day participant in the business now. Um, I still pursue the architecture and planning work. Um, but the team that is there, their family, um, I love dropping in and catching up with everybody, uh, still go to events, um, you know, pre COVID era, um, and participate wherever I can. Um, but that business had a kind of like cloud over a lot of my other professional work, um, uh, because it was everything. It was after five o'clock, I was doing that, um, until midnight, um, for three, four or five years. And um, what I learned through that process was I had kind of gotten distracted and pulled away by the brewery a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but I just loved architecture and I really loved coming back to that. So um, kept with um, that, um, kept with my architecture work, um, was doing city planning work at that time that we launched the brewery. I was actually a staff planner. Um, for a municipality outside of Oklahoma City. And uh, another one of those learning on the job experiences, um, I was very young. This would have been 2000, it was before the brewery started, so 2006, 7, 8. Um, learning, learning as much as I can, soaking up everything. But the value of being kind of an outsider and learning those lessons is I got to participate in all of the conversations that were being had in and around the Oklahoma City area about larger regional planning efforts. And so there's obviously other cities around there, um, very smart people, and just given an opportunity to ask, ask dumb questions and uh, in a kind of a safe space. And so I had this architecture um, career behind me. Um, I was still practicing architect um, and then um, got my 
AICP licensure or registration in 2011. And so from 2011 on, I've pretty much um, done handful of consulting. Um, I've come on full time for uh, different cities or different organizations um, here and there. And then a few years ago, um, I got married, moved to Tulsa. And so I was on my own at that point and uh, just really enjoyed the consulting and, and basically traveling and getting out and seeing as much as I possibly could. Um, and then I kind of felt the tug of being in Tulsa a little bit more. And so I joined a, a local firm here in Tulsa and um, was with them probably until about a year ago um, when I started my consulting and um, now pivoting into development work. So um, I've been really fortunate. I tell people that I've been blessed in my career and um, just you know had every opportunity given to me um, that you know obviously I had to be prepared for. It took a lot of work. Um, but I just I just love that intersection of how architecture and planning and business um, work so closely together. <laughs> you have a really diverse background. <laughs> yeah, you've can, seen a lot. <laughs> it can it can be distracting sometimes too because I'll I'll show people my resume and they, it, there's a generation of people you know older than me that we everybody needs to fit in a neat box. Right. And, and obviously that's changing with the gig economy and, and for all the, you know, the, I say the younger folks out there. Um, but the reality is you do need a skill set. Everybody needs something that they love doing and want to do. Sometimes the barrier to entry, uh, barrier to entry to those industries is, is high. You know, as an architect, mm -hmm. you have to go to school. Um, same, you know, same with you as a civil engineer, you have to go to school to do that. Um, but, you know, when you're given an opportunity is if you're prepared um, and there's, there's a famous quote that I'm not going to remember of the intersection of opportunity and preparedness and luck or something like that mm -hmm. is, is success. Mm -hmm. um, I just butchered that one, but um, <laughs> I knew yeah, where you're going. It is. Yeah. And, and at the same time too, um, to your point about having kind of a diverse background is I, I can talk with people who are uh, starting businesses and mm -hmm. and building new buildings and going through all that kind of heartache uh, and, and mental headache as well and give them just real clear advice of like this is one phase you know once you're up and managing the business it's a very different experience and that's what most mm -hmm. people want they want the managing they want the day-to-day -day. they don't want the headache of construction and mm -hmm. all the financing and all the other stuff uh, the chaos that it takes to get going so but yeah just been really fortunate it's been great yeah, I want to go back to your your point about uh, uh, hand drafting. Uh, <laughs> I also got to do that in high school. Actually, we had a, a con uh, what was it? It was actually a drafting class in high school, and yeah. uh, got to got to do hand drawn. Uh, nothing, nothing too crazy, nothing too cool. Uh, I think we drew a house, and we yeah. we did the uh, blueprints for a house that uh actually the construction program at the school and actually build um so it was it was a cool experience so it's, it's funny funny to hear someone else that has been through that and seen both sides of the coin obviously i wasn't i wasn't performing drawings in a in a professional sense or status yeah. but uh just to see what went into it is is just um eye-opening just yeah. to think about what what had been done in the past and where we are now.
Yeah. It, it's, it's funny to think about like the, how technologies change, but the reality is the, the idea of drawing and starting from a point of that's very elemental like that, the, the purpose is we've got to convey information. And, and in the technological age, we have a hard time, I think, of getting the real information that we want out to people because sometimes the technology does get in the way. You know, there's four different yeah, platforms absolutely. for communicating with someone. Emails get stacked up. There's, there's so many ways of communicating that drawings are, they're like an element that, you know, fires off in a, a nuclear reaction and disappears. And you use them for a period of time. A lot of work and effort and time goes into drawings and we use them, we build the thing and then we throw them away. Well, we keep them for seven years, but you know, ultimately we're not using them again. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and it's that kind of just that effort that goes into something that's always custom every single time is one of the reasons why I love, really love manufacturing. I love the idea of repetition and building things that you can use that same drawing, that same sketch, that same idea over and over again, and then perfect it along the way. Because, you know, I'm sure the house that you drew in high school was perfect. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. it just, we, we just, we learned over time and you have, you have to have that repetition. And so, um, yeah, drawing is the best way to slow down, be really methodical about it. Um, and, and really just, yeah, just, you have to learn the components. Frankly, the purpose of drawing is to learn how the building goes together because you really have to know the materials. If you don't know how to construct something, then the drawings are just a representation. Um, they're, they're not really going to be useful. Right. Right. So just to go back even further, you were talking about, you know, your trip to Chicago and how things clicked. Um, can you go into that a little more detail, how that trip kind of changed your persona or maybe enforced your decisions for architecture? Yeah. So I think it's part of just like seeing a dream in real life in front of you. And if anybody is, you know, um, you know, walk the river, um, you know, somewhere, you know, around Michigan Avenue, um, you can see the Tribune Tower. Um, you can see some of the other, you know, historic um, buildings there. That doesn't exist in Oklahoma. It, it never existed in, in my mind to be like, these places are real. And you can have this kind of just like, I mean, SimCity didn't even exist yet. It was just hard to fathom exactly like what was happening. Why were they there? Um, who built them, you know, oh, they've been there for a hundred and something years. It was just a magical experience to see Chicago with my family and, um, and come back. And I it just, it was a spark. Something happened and every newspaper I would find every, you know, my family were cutting out magazines and things of cool buildings. And I was reading about things, obviously, you know, as every American architect is, you know, someone's going to ask you about Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, and, and that really, <laughs> frankly, that led me, you know, that part of the Chicago school and led me to Louis Sullivan. And I, I just caught this bug and was, it was just insatiable, you know, all the way through. And I kind of kept asking my, you know, myself questions of like, well, what, what is it, you know, what is it made of? Um, you know, how, how does somebody go about the process of building a building now? And of course, Chicago is really unique, um, in and of itself, obviously, because of the fire and because of really the codes that have been generated from Chicago that we all use today, 
um, there's a thousand hours lesson on the history of uh, architecture in Chicago. Um, that's fascinating. Everybody should um, spend some time in Chicago on one of those architecture tours. Um, but yeah, it was one of those places and it, it, it was real. Um, but at the same time, it lived in this kind of fantasy world in my mind for a long time. It was just very inspirational. You know, it's just one of those things as a kid that you're like, all right, I'm going to do that. That's it. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just as easy as that. Easy yeah. as that. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a, a similar, uh, you know, path that I, I see most architects taking. And frankly, even some civil engineers, they'll, they'll take the road towards architecture and decide, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if studio sounds right for me. So, but, uh, it, you know, kind of transition that to, to where you're at now. Yeah. Um, and, and you said you're, you're doing development right now and, and consulting still. Can you mm -hmm. just kind of describe your, your day to day right now? Yeah. So the, the development work is forthcoming. Um, this is one of those uh, kind of realities of stepping into a new world. Um, in my consulting business, I'm very fortunate to uh, work with a handful of cities. Um, I am essentially full-time now um, with a community outside of Tulsa, um, helping them move forward, uh, lots of growth, lots of permits here. Um, and so assisting with the development work, but also it's kind of a blend of um, economic development a little bit, and then just kind of like you know, forward, forward planning, future planning, current planning, kind of a mix of everything in a, in a medium or a smaller size community, you get to see everything. Um, the development work is really kind of all over. Um, I've got some projects that our, our team and I are looking at um, both in Oklahoma City here in Tulsa, um, Dallas, Austin and Kansas City. And um, really having a, a good network of people that I've worked with over the years from other planners, landscape architects, other builders, developers, and, and people in the finance community um, that I've passed passed by or, or worked with or collaborated with. Um, it's just really great to be able to like pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, uh, here's, here's an opportunity. What do you think? Um, what can we do? Um, excuse me. For me, the motivation to pursue development work is more to connect with the community. And, you know, I I've seen so many projects come across, I get the phone call, I deliver the drawings, um, you know, weeks or months later, uh, we go build it, um, the occupants move in, um, they fill the office spaces, they fill the hospitals, um, they fill the apartment buildings, and, and they kind of go on. And what I've learned over the years is that I want to be at the table when these decisions are being made, because there's another way to very smartly integrate advanced construction practices into the design and, and closing the loop. So it's less of a, you know, client calls the architect, architect, you know, works with the contractor, contractor works with the subs and the manufacturers, and then they assemble the building. I, it's not entirely design build, but it's more like design develop, or develop design develop build, um, kind of under one umbrella. And um, our 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 
company is Ethos. Um, we are working on uh, B Corp certification. Um, we are not there yet. We don't have enough of the projects under our belt or enough staff, frankly, uh, to, to, to qualify, um, but we are pursuing that. Uh, B Corp certification is uh, follows a lot of the ESG um, corporate um, standards that are out there. And the purpose of creating a public benefit development corporation is to just be very open about our intentions, um, open as much as possible about our finances, about um, how much the project costs, um, you know, not necessarily, you know, disclosing all of our investor team, um, but being able to use um, the newly um, uh, created or newly authorized um, crowdfunding um, portals um, to democratize, democratize some of that investment. And so um, there's a handful of, of just really amazing um, real estate crowdfunding platforms out there. And, uh, and actually your, your guest, Eve Picker with Small Change, um, she was part of my early inspiration um, for turning around to the community. And instead of creating a bunch of NIMBYs through the process, how can we do the planning? How can we do the finance? How can we do some of this stuff in front of people? And open our books a little bit, and um, and and try and deliver our projects that way. Um, obviously, there's some challenges we're going to run into if we do have you know zoning conflicts or um, or property disputes or something. But I feel like there are um, ways in which we can engage the neighborhood and engage the community at large, so we can have people who are calling us up and saying we we love what you do. We want you to do that over here. And I think that our work will be our our best advertisement. And um, and I've experienced that in architecture when I've gotten referrals from other clients. And uh, and I do feel confident that we can deliver these projects um, and uh, and really yeah really kind of change the scenario a little bit and um, and bring people in because I one other thing is I think people really are interested gen genuinely in uh, quality environments. Uh, you know, people want to go travel to Europe or, you know, travel to Southeast Asia or somewhere and see these beautiful cities. Mm -hmm. And um, we just don't have a lot of that here. And, and one of the reasons that I, I love the placemaking podcast is it brings a lot of those elements together and it's, it, it can be intentional. And that's something that we don't have a lot of. And so if we can, you know, build new buildings, maybe renovate old buildings and be intentional through the process, um, we can create one little element of change along the way. And if it helps raise the, uh, raise the water, raise the level and raises all boats, so be it. That, that's great. Um, we just want to, you know, stick to our standards and stick to our principles and deliver something to the community. And hopefully they like what we do. That's, <laughs> that is really, really interesting. And I, I, I think we could do a whole nother episode on just even talking about um, th that strategy, or maybe three episodes at least. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and there, there's, is, yeah, there's so many people who are doing it really well right now. Um, there's some, I think there's some good teams of people who have figured out how to engage the crowd, uh, both at a local level, you know, like in neighborhoods and in communities. And, and instead of, you know, backdoor deals and, um, you know, and trying to keep all your cards close to your chest is 
opening up to people and being honest and sincere is, is hey, we've got, this is a new world. You know, we have mm-hmm. to start doing this more and more um, because mm-hmm. we need that kind of authenticity out there. Right. Right. And uh, the thing I see most hindering, you know, if, if people going to city councils, planning commissions, whatnot, uh, rezoning cases, you know, that, that come up is, you know, there's a lack of transparency, which creates adversary or adverse reactions to anything that, that is change. Right. Yeah, yeah. And my recommendation for anybody that, you know, I, I talk to that is about to go through that process is share as much as you can, even if, you know, you don't necessarily feel comfortable. Um, I think having that showing your cards will get you so much further than saying, uh, you know, I just want to rezone this because I can and I want to. And, you know, not not engaging in the community beforehand. And um, I think that's a huge mistake. And I see that uh, knocking down deals yeah. often. Yeah. Is, I don't think there's been a lot of examples lately and especially, you know, popular ways of rethinking development. Um, I'll be just be honest. The architecture community has a lot to learn from um, the marketing people of, you know, and, and, and frankly, architecture and engineering as well. There are certain groups that are just really great at engaging with the community, being leaders, standing out. But we need more architects and civil engineers um, you know, on planning commissions, on boards of adjustment, um, running for city councils, um, running for county commissioner even. Um, the, the physical stuff takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. And the investment that you need, you know, even just to get to planning commission, as you're well aware, it takes a lot of, lot of effort. And once you get there, you have to have made some assumptions um, and it's kind of a cost benefit analysis of what do you lose by going in front of the public? You know, they, they're a little bit more aware of your project. They, they can voice their you know, concerns, positive or negative. Um, but what I've always found is when I open up to, to the community, to neighbors, to people, just pick up the phone and call them. They, they feel heard. They feel connected to. And, and even if they object, you know, a lot of people today are like, you know what? went through the effort, you know, he called me and he, we talked about it and I disagree with it, but um, you know, we, we talked about adding these things and sure enough, like we added a, a line of trees here or we moved the trash can or whatever it is, is engaging with people is the business, you know? Yeah. We're building buildings and we're designing stuff and we're um, providing housing and office space and commercial space, but this is, this is a people business and uh, mm-hmm. we, we can't forget that. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, small, small concessions go a long way for building rapport. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not giving away the farm if you add, you know, a berm or trees or whatnot, you know, it's, it's, uh, but that goes a long way with building trust in the community and, and, uh, with the, you know, your shareholders nearby. Yeah. uh, Cause 'cause really everybody is, is your shareholder, you know, (laughs) everybody adjacent. You, you said it, and, and I think it's worth highlighting is it's trust. And, you know, the old criticism of, oh, it's somebody from out of town. You know, they don't, they don't care about our community. They don't care about our neighborhood. They don't care about our block. Um, you get that a lot today. And I think there's I think we live in an environment where 
there's a little bit too much anonymity behind the computer screen and we're free to say whatever we, we want mm-hmm. without the social repercussions of, you know, getting made fun of, or, you know, getting called out. Um, we don't have a good public square and, uh, and, you know, ironically, um, you know, the public square is what we need the most, you know, we need people to have a healthy debate. We need people in person having a healthy debate. Um, the echo chamber thing is, just, I don't think is serving us well on a national level or an international level. Um, and, and when you start coming down to projects is that effect starts infusing people as us versus them. And it's easy to point to the development community or frankly, the investment community of saying, well, they're proposing something new. So, you know, they must have all this money. They must be greedy. They must be, you know, they've got all these bad intentions. The reality is it's business, you know, building buildings is a business um, and in operating cities is a business. Um, it's a, it's a, and cities, my love about city work is you're working um, to steward the public trust. You know, you are given this set of codes and rules and you're asked to administer those rules. Um, the same is true on the, on the public side and development. Like you have a building code and you have, you know, rules and you have operating agreements and you have lots of other structures that tell you how to act. And the most successful people are going to be good stewards of that. And a lot of that, it, it is, it comes down to trust because if you don't have the trust of those people to do that administration and, and run the business, um, you're not going to be doing it very long. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, <laughs> in this, in this age of, uh, the recent pandemic, uh, current pandemic is, uh, I've forever seen pandemic. forever pandemic. <laughs> the, uh, the, the worst ones that I have seen as far as city council, planning commission, whatnot, are the ones that have been virtual that uh, don't allow present, mm, you know, wow. presence of, of anybody. And I have seen some really rough, <laughs> really rough public comment uh, because you don't see the person and you don't, yeah. you're not able to interact in person. And You don't and get stage not, fright. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can voice your opinion without repercussion. Um, and it's, I, I hope we, we can get back into that, uh, you know, the public realm and the public square, like you're saying, having a forum that is yeah. a little more um, in person to, you know, like you said, and I think a lot of it comes down to people, the most lay people don't necessarily understand the process either, um, which is, one reason why uh, I, I started this podcast too is to kind of relay that, uh, the, relay the process, relay what goes into the process of, of actually yeah. building a building and, and making that a little more transparent. Cause frankly, most people just see a building go up and, and that's about it. Yeah. And, and they don't realize uh, the years that went into just getting, <laughs> getting that to break there, Yeah. Yeah. Well, if placemaking podcast ever starts into merchandise and you want a, uh, a planning commission drinking game, um, I think, you know, like, have you thought of the children? Uh, <laughs> you know, there's going to be crime, traffic, um, you know, staff report, um, you, any of those things. You just like you just go to planning commission, uh, you know, the meeting minutes and this, or, or the videos. And as soon as you hear that. Um, yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> that's funny. I mean, you know, when I for in my own business when whenever we present 
um, every every time I come up with the the five or six items that I'm going to see, I know I'm going to see with anything involving anything dense or um, you know any upzoning. I know you know I'm going to have to address these five six things. Yeah. You know, and like you said, it's security, it's drainage, it's traffic. You know, it's um, burden on the existing infrastructure you know it's all these yeah, things police, yeah. that we see uh, and it you know it, it really just comes down to an uh, emotional reaction uh when it when it does get into public comment that's unfavorable yeah or not favorable um and, and there's nothing that you can do unfortunately at that point if it does get to that level uh, <laughs> yeah well, it, what I find fascinating is this disassociation that so many people have who live in a new subdivision and, um, and you know, and they're, you know, the next yard over, you know, the next phase of the development is going to come in and they're protesting their own developers. They're protesting their own people who, who put the first phase in that they live in. And, and they just don't understand that we're so hungry for homeownership. We're hungry for that lifestyle or whatever it is. But the reality is if somebody else wants the same thing, you know, they're like, no, we don't want that. No, we don't need the same thing. Like, and, and it, it, I, th I don't think it's a uniquely American um, feeling. I just think that the way we go about the land use operations and particularly the problems that zoning poses, it, it makes, it pushes people away because it's hard to understand. It's, it's hard to get into it. Um, but everybody knows those simple things. And when you boil it down to what's personal with people, as you described is, those are their real concerns. It's not disassociation. They, they, are, they are very concerned about those things, but the practicality of what it is, had they maybe grown up in a city that is a very urban place, or they've spent more time in um, places that have mixed use or mixed density, um, or frankly, just have a more urban lifestyle, they wouldn't, they would see what they're experiencing and it's particularly in the suburbs. Um, the, the how monolithic it is and that there's not a lot of variation there's a lot a lot of deviation compared to what exists in you know more more urban and more dense places and so um i see less conflict inside those urbanized areas than i do out mm -hmm. on the periphery and mm -hmm. I, I think that disassociation is just really unique and i think there's a psychological experiment for somebody in there someday um mm -hmm. of why there's so much protest when there's so much of the same thing vanilla you know, out there. So I'm not mm -hmm. bashing the suburbs. I'm just, you know, right. Now that's, fact. Is there all, uh, all warranted, yeah. <laughs> uh, thoughts on the, on the subject? I think, I think it's really interesting to get not only your point of view as someone that has worked more so closely with, with city planning, um, you know, Rather than mine, I, I, you know, I've got, I'm on, you know, boards at the city and, and, you know, that kind of thing, but not necessarily in a consulting uh, realm. So it, it's really interesting to hear uh, your take on, on the subject. And I'd, I'd be interested in kind of digging a little bit more into kind of how you're consulting. Do you, do you have any internal conflict between what, you know, maybe what the city is thinking versus what your own beliefs are or how does that oh yeah 
I, yeah. I fully, I fully admit I, I am an urbanist. I love cities. Um, I love the kind of mess that exists in, you know, urban environments. Um, I, I think that there's a healthy density that exists and, and this is obviously, you know, kind of a popular, maybe cliche thing, but, um, we need more missing metal kind of housing densities. And, um, I, I love that that has come into the public consciousness. Um, but the reality is we, as United States, have grown so much since World War II um, growth, or at that time progress, um, to you know to industrialize farming, to electrify, um, to build the highways, to you know to have a modern lifestyle post World War II, um, just changed changed the way we were thinking. Uh, we were just a very different country after World War II. And, and you just fast forward and track, you know, every decade, builders have gotten more successful in streamlining. Um, the trades have gotten, you know, more streamlined in how they, you know, how they deliver work and different progress. I don't really believe that cities are planned in, in the United States. Um, I think they happen by happenstance. They happen lot by lot. Um, we do put plans on paper. Um, but the reality is we're not really planning in the sense of we want, we're going to set forward a plan and this is the type of urban environment that's going to provide the type of thing that people crave. We basically set up to be like, this is what our builder and developer partners are going to deliver us um, because, because having people is your community. And we just have an industrial system that, um, that supplies single family housing. And so I, I struggle with the idea that we have these pre-World War II gridded neighborhoods and these just, you know, beautiful, you know, pattern of streets. And then we have sort of spaghetti noodle neighborhoods um, that have, you know, popped up in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And um, we can't really retrofit that stuff from the last you know, 30 or 40 years, at least. There's, there's no real way um, until, you know, until it completely degrades to redo it. It's, it, as I say um, to people before, it's baked in. We're set with this pattern for a long time. And mm -hmm. the traffic concerns, the struggles for, you know, police and fire service, also, it's baked in. We're going to have this. Now we've got to find a way to pay for it. And we've grown so much and the maintenance burden is so high that it's going to be a real challenge um, to keep the stuff that we've put out there in the world functioning. Um, and particularly at a time like right now where um, we've just got supply chain issues, we have labor issues. There's some real problems out there that are starting to show that we have to rethink when we build new, we need to do it in a way that maximizes the land and, and maximizes the attractive or the healthy densities in our communities. And, um, and as architects, we are, we are beginning to have that conversation. We try, um, but on the architecture community, we're one side of it. On the planning side, there's a lot of people who, a lot of planners who really advocate for dense, walkable, healthy, you know, urban environments. But the reality is we have to build that and we have to create it new but in order to get that kind of scale, you know, you need a city, you need a whole city to kind of do that. And, you know, Detroit may be one of those places in, in 15, 20 years that we look at that they lost so much and they were able to rebuild in a different way. 
Um, but we, we have, again, we have so much of this that's baked in. Um, it's going to be hodgepodge for a long period of time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Sound like uh, Mr. Charles Marone. Yeah. Strong towns. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that was a, a very eye opening book, but to see, you know, the burden of infrastructure in these, in these, uh, you know, reaching out even further out in cities, annexing future areas. And then, yeah. you know, and that stuff's non-negotiable, you know, water access, mm-hmm. sewer access, um, police and fire. Um, you, there are essential services that you need. If you're going to provide that, um, you, it has to be there. Um, society doesn't function very long, you know, if, if you lose water service. And so we're, yeah, we got, there's some, there's some big problems out there. I'm not going to put a negative spin on this. The positive is that we have, we have the awareness. Uh, we know what the problems are. We know what the challenges are and, and there's a way to fix it too, in some ways. Um, you know, like starting off and, and really following the good planning principles um, that, you know, folks like the Congress for New Urbanism and uh, other other groups are putting together is we need to really focus on places where we can create this kind of sustainable, self-sufficient um, and urban environments. And we used to call them neighborhoods. Um, you know, <laughs> so let's not, let's not lose that name. Um, but it's, it's just it's just fascinating. Um, that, you know, like we have this, like, I don't want to pay for more services, but by the way, I demand services. So. Right. Right. And man, I, I love this conversation. I love this back and forth and I, I'm, I'm happy that uh, we're going to get to keep doing this forward. Uh, just wanted to mention to everyone listening that uh, Mark, will, Mark will be joining me full time to help bring another perspective to the placemaking discussion and uh, I can't wait to have him on board. Awesome, man. I am happy to join you. And, uh, and especially, you know, for the folks that have not listened back through all the episodes and the great conversation that, that Matt has had um, with just really amazing people, um, people I admire folks that I've read their books and, and listened to them on other podcasts and things, um, you know, I'm going to really tap into Matt's expertise and uh, the vision that he's put forward here on the podcast. And um, yeah, I am just excited about the future and uh, spreading the message and especially the opportunity to talk to more really amazing people and uh, that are making some incredible change out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is going to be really fun for me to have uh, even another perspective that, uh, would provide you know people listening you know another vantage point from which to you know dig into these discussions a little bit further i think it'll really add another layer to this podcast and and really appreciate mark for uh being willing to to join in and and i'm looking forward to you know this this next season we've got uh, quite a few lined up and i, I think we're we're going to have another fun ep- or fun season. Um, I guess, Mark, do you want to give us where we can find out a little bit more about you, and then um, we'll we'll kind of kick it off for for next week's. Uh, perfect segue. I wish I had a great answer. Um, <laughs> our website is under under construction. Um, okay. I am uh, on Instagram at uh, at Mark Seibold, M A R K S E I B O L D. 
and on Twitter at Cybold. Um, it's mostly hot takes about um, physics or astronomy or something one of my kids have done, uh, at least on Twitter. Um, and on Instagram, as one of uh, my wife's friends says, I just post random pictures. Um, so <laughs> it's not not incredibly creative, um, but just little snapshots of the world out there. So no theme uh, to it. But I will give a little shout out to the uh, retweet community. Uh, on Twitter, mm -hmm. learned a great deal, crossed paths with Matt and so many other um, you know, hardworking people there. Um, that's a, just, it's a great platform. If you're in the real estate or development community, um, definitely tag us and look at some of our followers. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to build the presence there too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, awesome conversation. I really enjoyed kind of digging into a little bit more of the philosophy and learning a little bit more about your background. Yeah, thank you, man. And, and where you came from. And I think that really, really is a good segue into this next season. All right, man. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks. 